sermon text this evening comes from Judges 4. So if you have your Bible, turn there with me. Judges 4 and 5. This is a survey. won't cover every word of this, but we will cover the, the major storyline here. Let's begin by reading this entire first chapter. So chapter 4. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Hagayim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. For Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And I... And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will, t- will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagayim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, And went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. 
So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, and the presence of the children of Israel, and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this text. It is your inspired word, and I pray it will do its work among us. I pray, Lord, for the salvation of souls. I pray that you will feed your people. That's why we gather. We need your food. May this, even this strange text, be food for the soul. In Christ's name, amen. We begin with a quote, this from a man named Archibald Alexander. Alexander was a Presbyterian minister. He was the first professor at Princeton University, its first leader. Some would make the argument he's the most important American theologian and would put him right up there with Jonathan Edwards. He did a number of great things in his life. And in this quote, he looks back to his upbringing in Virginia, And I want you to take note of why he finds Virginia so noteworthy. I know there's some brothers from Texas in here, and those from Texas like to tell us that they're from Texas, and all the reasons it's so great to be from Texas. But we're in Virginia, and I want you to celebrate Virginians this evening. This is what Archibald Alexander says, but take note of the reason. Here's the quote. Here I take pleasure in saying that in no class of society anywhere have I found examples of more pure and elevated piety than among the ladies of Virginia. And I have reason to believe that these examples have rather been increased than diminished since I left my native state. It may, in an important sense, be said that the Commonwealth has been preserved from utter destruction by the prudence, purity, and piety of Virginian mothers, end quote. That's a strong quote. The purity, the prudence, and the piety of Virginian mothers are the thing that is preserving Virginia, this time, this is early 1800s, from moral decay. Virginian mothers. He goes on, he has wonderful things to say about women, about Mothers, and he, he also says this, this, this to mothers. I have often heard pious females, even pious females, complain that they had little or nothing in their power, and they felt as if they were almost useless members of society. This is an egregious miscalculation. Their influence, he's talking about women, Their influence is silent and spreads imperceptibly, but it is real and effective. Piety is like light which cannot be hid. The more it seeks concealment and retires from public notice, the more brightly it shines. Female influence only seizes or operates unfavorably when women depart from their own proper sphere. End quote. Strong wonderful words to women. I totally agree 
with everything he's said there, the influence of women typically is, is silent but effective. It is the sort of influence that is not noticeable, not immediately, however. And then he says that typically female influence seizes when they depart from their proper sphere. In their proper sphere, he will go on and he'll talk about being centered in the home. So there's a couple of quotes for you to begin, and now we come to Deborah. Okay, how do we make sense of this particular story? Because it's, it's about a woman, about two women really, who are outside of what you would consider a typical sphere. As many of you know, we're, to use a word, complementarian here. We believe that there are, um, that men and women have equal worth. We would say that there are different roles, that the role of pastor or elder, for instance, is reserved for men. Egalitarians, on the other hand, they're going to say that men and women should have equal roles as well as worth. When we come to this chapter, Judges chapter 4, we have baggage, cultural baggage. We, we, are, we are brought up in a society where women seem to only be fulfilled, culturally speaking, when they, when they get out of that home sphere. But when we come to this chapter, this is not a battle of the sexes. It's not meant to disparage men. Some will do that with this chapter because Barak has weak faith, as we'll see. It is neither meant to subvert the typical gender roles that God has placed upon Israel. The book, remember, it's a history. It describes what has happened. That's key. It is not a law that we are about to read. It is, it is not a prescription. Rather, this is a description of how God acted in a particular time and place. And we should use, just by way of reminder, the clear parts of Scripture to interpret Passages like this, the more difficult parts of Scripture. So let's begin then. And again, I'm not going to cover every little thing. This is a survey of chapters 4 and 5, but I I have a few key things I hope to communicate. The beginning of the chapter, we see the typical judges cycle. We've spoken about this the last few times that we've been in judges. Israel has apostatized. First observation I'm going to call this the sorry state of affairs. It is sorry indeed. And that judge's cycle looks like this. Israel rebels against God. This happened in chapter 3. It happened in chapter 2. Now it's happening again in chapter 4. Israel rebels against God. God uses their enemies to oppress Israel. And then Israel cries out to God. God delivers his people through a judge. So that's what I'm calling four stages. And you can see those four stages really in the first four verses. I won't go over those, but those four stages are very clearly spelled out. Verse 1, 2, 3, 4, you'll see it. Then verse 4, Deborah is raised up by God to judge Israel. And when we get to this chapter, we need to note that Israel is falling more and more into sin. Chapter 3, one commentator notes, it's, it's Worth, worth noting this, when Israel first fell into sin, they were in bondage to their enemy for eight years. The next time, when they were serving the Moabites, they were in bondage for 18 years. Now, they're under the Canaanites, and they're in bondage for 20 years. So there's a progression. 
And by the end of the book of Judges, things only grow worse. That's, that's the depressing part, if you will, about this book. If you read Judges and never got to Christ, you'd be a depressed individual indeed. Things only grow worse. The last verse of the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So from here till then, it's only getting worse. In our immediate chapter, we see that a town that has already been conquered, Hazor, is back up and running. If you look back at Joshua 11, Israel defeated Hazor. And now Hazor has, has, has come back. The Canaanites are there. And that's where Jabin is. So this is a story of a people really going backwards, if you will, in their faith. And this opponent is perhaps their most formidable yet. They have 900 chariots, and as Jim Hamilton has observed, this conjures up memories of Egypt. All these chariots, and that'll come into play later. Last chapter, we read that a foreigner delivered Israel. You remember Shamgar. And the fact that a foreigner delivered Israel should tell us something about the state of Israel. How bad must it be in Israel if, if foreigners with ox goads are having to save Israel? That's who God chose to save them. Similarly, in chapter 4, things aren't better. They're back in the mire, if you will. Israel is a filthy nation just continuously going back to their sin. God is good, yet they wallow in the mire. Okay, quick note. I'm going to make note of this in Isaiah 3. Isaiah 3, it does talk about how when a nation is oppressed, that children and women may rule over them. And this indeed may be a judgment upon the people. Israel is certainly under judgment. Deborah comes up. They are under the rule of the Canaanites, and God gives them a woman to rule. But that, it, it, it is too simplistic, and I hope this comes through tonight. It is too simplistic to say that Deborah is a sign of judgment upon Israel. That is not the whole picture. That might be part of the picture, but I don't think it's the main idea of this chapter or the one to follow More primarily, the message of this chapter is that the grace of God is unrelenting. God pursues his people. God keeps his covenant. He will use even foreigners to save his people. He will use women to save his people. That's a message. But secondarily, the message of this chapter is that God wants Israel to see the wonderful role that women play in the redemption of mankind. So those are the two messages. The grace of God is unrelenting, pursues his people, and secondly, God wants us to see the wonderful role women play in the redemption of mankind. So let's look. Um, I'm going to put this under two two headings, really. I, I do want you to see this first. Who is the hero of the text? There are a number of, a number of players. Is it, is it Barak? Is it, is it Deborah? Is it Jael? I want you to see foremost that it is Yahweh who is the hero. And so I'm going to discuss this, this story from, from that perspective first. Yahweh wins the battle. 
So more than seeing any one particular judge as the hero of the text, it is proper to see these records as accounts of God's faithfulness to his people. So in this story, in quick 15-second form, God raises up Deborah. Deborah rules Israel, as we'll see. But Deborah does not go out to battle like the other judges. She calls up Barak. Barak goes, and he leads the battle. And then the commander of the other army wanders away from the camp, and he is eventually killed by a woman, and that's the end of the story. But foremost, God is in charge. This is fundamental. He is central. So look first that Deborah acknowledges this. Verse 6, it is God who speaks to Deborah and calls Barak to gather troops and go to battle. So who's doing the calling? It is God. God is in control. He's speaking to Deborah. Deborah calls Barak. God is the foundation. Notice also verses 14 and 15. Deborah says to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. It is the Lord who is going out before you. She wants us to see that Yahweh is central. And then secondly, this is, this is a little more subtle, the real reason Israel wins this battle is because of a rainstorm, frankly. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, by the way, is poetry. It is the song of Deborah, and in chapter 5 we have a retelling of chapter 4. It's just in song form. So in chapter 5, we get some more elaboration upon the details. But it is a rainstorm. And who's in charge of the clouds? It's God, of course. So verse 4 of chapter 5. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. There's that word. The heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed. It's a rainstorm that wins the battle. Note also, verses 20 and 21. They fought from the heavens. It's not Israel's winning the battle. Heaven, the heavens are the ones doing the fighting. The stars are doing the fighting. That's literally what it says, verse 20. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. So it's nature itself that wins The battle, Josephus, the historian, records that there was a great rain that came down during the battle. And this lines up with what we see. The rain comes down so hard, and why is rain important to this story? Because the enemy has chariots, 900 of them. Chariots are a devastating weapon. And when it rains and rains and rains, the chariots are useless. And that's why Sisera gets out of his chariot, and he goes on foot And while he's trampling through villages, that's when Jael sees him. So you see how God is really the central figure of this story. It is the rain that wins the battle. God also predestines all of these things beforehand. You'll notice verse 11 and 12. This is speaking about Jethro. His other name is Hobab. Those are two good names. Jethro and Hobab, it's the father-in-law of Moses. It's that tribe. 
And this tribe moves just before the battle. They, they move locations. And as they move locations, they're in a different place. And Jael is of this tribe. So she is located at just the right spot because Sisera gets off his chariot and walks through right where this people move. So you see that, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. They move right before the rainstorm, and they walk right into Jael's tent. So God is the hero, and you and I both know this well. We hear this often at this church. Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. This is all throughout Scripture. Secondly, I want you to see this, and we'll dwell a little bit longer here. God has ordained women to play a vital role in the salvation of his people. God has ordained women to play a vital role in the salvation of his people. God saves Israel, yet God uses means. And and the question that you should be asking, I think, is why does God use the means he does? Why does he use a woman? What is he trying to communicate to us? In the last chapter, why does he use an ox goad by a foreigner? These are the things we should be asking. So let's, let's now go with that question in mind. We'll begin, let's start with Barak. Barak gets a bad rep, I think. Barak is the leader of the army. Barak is a warrior. And in verse 8, he is called up, and verse 8 records his response. He says, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And this is, Deborah has told him, go up. The Lord has given them into your hand. Go into the battle. But Barak wavers. He has weak faith. So Deborah responds. She says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So Barak has faith, but weak faith. Some will say that this entire chapter is an indictment on men because of this verse. I think that's too much. I don't think that's the central point. And that's, that's what I'm hoping to communicate tonight. Listen to Matthew Poole. He sticks up for Barak a little bit. Barak's offer to go with Deborah shows the truth of his faith. His refusal to go with her, without her shows the weakness of his faith, that he could not trust God's bare word. That's right. That's right, I think. But it's worth noting that in Hebrews, Barak is commemorated for his faith. You remember in that that hall of faith in Hebrews 11? Barak is actually listed there alongside these other heroes. Remember this verse? What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. So Barak has faith. Think about this. He has weak faith, but he goes to battle. He listens to Deborah. He goes to battle. 
Now, why does she not go herself? Well, because she's a woman. She is a judge, yes, but this word has really two connotations. And Deborah is a judge in sort of a managerial sense. Barak is a judge in a deliverer sense. And together, they really complement one another, don't they? Deborah is a ruler, and you'll notice that people bring cases to her at the beginning of of the chapter. And Barak is the warrior. Now let's speak about Deborah. Verse 4 and 5 describe her. She is raised up as a prophetess. She's a judge in a managerial, governmental sense. But she does not rule as a warrior or as a deliverer. And then notice the role she plays. And she simply tells Barak that... The glory of this battle will go to a woman. And, and, and at first we believe, like, oh, well, Deborah's going to get the glory. But it's not her. It's another woman, a woman named Jael. So let's, let's look at this now a little, bit more, a little bit more closely. Jael is there, and verse 18, she goes out to meet Sisera. This is out after Sisera gets off his, his chariot, and she comes out to him. She pursues him a little bit. She knows what's going on. And she sees him, and she says, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. And I want you to notice some subtle details here. She's acting how? Is she acting like a great warrior? I would argue she's actually acting like a woman. She's acting like a mother. Notice next, he says, Give me a little water to drink. What does she offer him instead? Milk. Like from a mother. And then she she coddles him, if you will, under a blanket and puts him to rest in her tent. And he sleeps quietly. It's, It's this overture. It's subtle, but it's there. And then she goes over and she takes a tent peg and a hammer quietly, and nails him right through the skull. Now, we've been here before. What does this remind you of? There's a woman. We haven't seen this quite yet. But there's a woman who crushes the skull of the enemy of God. It's Genesis 3.15. There is going to be the seed of a woman who is raised up and crushes the head of Satan, and yet here we see it again in Scripture. I'm not trying to just pick out passages that that preach this theme. It just so happens that the last several texts that I've happened to be in are about this theme. But here we have a woman going over and actually doing the task herself. Now back to Deborah. Deborah calls herself a mother in Israel. I think that, too, is is noteworthy. Notice verse 7 of chapter 5. This is the elaboration. 
When we think of Deborah, what do we think of? Do we think of a, of a CEO? Do we think of a woman in today's sense of the word who's, who's trying to, to break glass ceilings? She's trying to go out there and, 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 and work that nine to five and, and live outside of what we would think of a, a biblical sphere. Verse 7 of chapter 5, village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose. And look at how she describes herself. Arose as a mother in Israel. She could have said manager in Israel. She could have said princess. I arose like a princess. And I am at the top. And I rule. I am a judge. There's all kinds of terms She could have chosen. Instead, she chooses this term, mother. Mother. And I think this is is part of what God wants us to see. And let me double down on this. Look at the very end of the song. Deborah sings a song with Barak. This is chapter 5. Look at the very end of the song, beginning in verse 28. We have yet another mother. This is central to my argument. I hope you see this. I had never seen this before, honestly. And so this is exciting to me. Verse 28, 29, and 30. The mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? So Deborah is now taking the perspective of a mother, but the mother of the enemy of God. And so this is poetry. And she's going to take the song in a different, turn, in a, in a, in a different sense. And, and she's going she's gonna to say, oh, look, look, imagine the mother of Sisera. So you see the theme. We have three mothers. This is the third. And this is an immoral mother. Look at the fruit of her womb. It's Sisera, the enemy of, the enemy of God. And look at what Sisera likes to do. Verse 30, are they not finding and dividing the spoil? They're wondering why Sisera is not back from the battle. They don't know that Sisera is dead. And then it says this horrific thing, to every man a girl or two, for Sisera, plunder of dyed garments, plunder of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter, Look at that part in verse 30. To every man, a girl or two. What does Sisera do after he wins a great victory? He rapes women. And his men rape women. To every man, a girl or two. And so his, his mother is out looking out her window, wondering, where is my son? Where is his coming? And she does not see him. So we see this, this theme, if you will, of motherhood, we have good examples, and then we have this poor example. My point is is that I want you to see this as a theme. And in the end, I can't cover every note of this, but I want you to listen to just one or two more quotes, and then we will close. From Alistair Roberts. I'm sorry, from Jim, Jim Hamilton. Jim Hamilton actually says that Deborah has complementarian instincts. That's a good way of thinking about it. When, when Deborah gets the word from God, she, she tells Barak, you go do the fighting. 
That's a complementarian instinct, I think. And this from Alistair Roberts. Deborah's interest was not to establish gender equality for public life, but to establish Israel's strength again by raising up sons to fight. So what was Deborah's role, according to this theologian? It's to raise up the next generation to do the work of the kingdom. This chapter is not an endorsement of egalitarian theology. Some will use it as that. This chapter promotes, I think, quite the opposite. It's a, it's a, it's a chapter full of mothers, good mothers, and a bad one. Tra- traditional gender roles, I think, in this chapter are maintained. They're embraced. Alistair Roberts goes on. He says this. Deborah's heroism is less that of a woman breaking the Israelite glass ceiling of the patriarchal power structure. It is rather a maternal heroism, a sort of heroism that typically lacks public prominence, but which women more generally widely exercise rather than presenting heroism as more proper to male realms with a few women struggling to enter those realms too. Perhaps in Deborah we see a feminine heroism coming to the foreground. And I think that's what's going on. Is you see that for this time in Judges, that, that God raises up these women to save the day, but they do so in a motherly sense. I think that's, the, I think that's in the water, if you will. And so, by way of application, what are we to do with this? Well, certainly we don't promote egalitarian theology. Rather, we see the central role that women play. As the quote suggested when I, when I opened up the sermon, the influence of women is often, is often imperceptible. We don't often see it. It's not prominent. But occasionally in the Bible, God will make things that are not prominent more prominent, that we may see his glory from a different angle. I think that's what's going on here. So we must continue to foster a healthy view of motherhood. We must see mothers as vital. We must see them as central to the redemption of mankind. After all, the Christ comes from a woman. We need to be careful that women see their role as vital, as important, because in our culture, I'm thinking of movies, even Pixar movies, when it gets down to the Pixar level, we know we're in trouble. Toy Story 4, little Bo Peep is trying to just, she's just trying to be like Woody. She says, get back and follow me. You can't get away from it. Then Cars 3, they ruin the Cars series for me. They're trying to, every, every, Heroine has got to be more like a man than the next. And I think in this chapter we have something that doesn't support that argument. Rather, it does quite the opposite. And then I'll close with a quote. This from Matthew Henry. This speaking of Barak and Deborah. Barak could do nothing without her head nor she without his hands, but both together made a complete deliverer and effected a complete deliverance. The greatest and best are not self-sufficient, but need one another. 
So societies need both men and women to play their differing roles well. When one party fails, all of society is the worse for it. This is, this is true in the church today. We need all the body, all the members. We need eyes, ears, hands, and so on, and when each plays his or her role well, this church, any church, will be built up more and more into the image and likeness of the head of the body of Christ, our Lord. And then lastly, just a note about chapter 5. Can't get to all this, but I'm going to end it here. Chapter 5 is a song. It's poetry. And it is noteworthy that it's written by a woman. What else is written by, the, by a woman? Well, Hannah. Hannah's song, we see later on in Scripture. Mary's song. Elizabeth's song. What are the women doing in Scripture? What are they doing? They're, they're adding glory. So we have this prose, Judges 4. I read that whole thing to you, line by line. But you go back, to, you go back and you read chapter 5. That's a lot more flavorful, isn't it? In a way, it's more, it's more glorious. It's, it's, it's tangible. It's beautiful. And it's the women, interestingly enough, in Scripture... That are, that are adding these things. I'll be honest with you, men can write poetry too. I don't exactly know what to make of this particular fact, but I think it's worth mentioning, and I hope that it feeds your soul. Let's pray together. Father, help us to make sense of this uh, unique passage And I pray that we will have eyes to see your glorious design. For it's good, I pray we'll trust you. And I pray that this is the type of text that will help each of us be content in our roles, whether it's a man or a woman or a child. Help us to be content in you. For your design, though mysterious, is wonderful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.